Man, we're so glad that you are here today. Man, what a fantastic morning it's been so far, right? I think that's the first time we ever baptized the microphone. So that's a good thing, all right? Uh, I love our baptisms. Don't, don't you love them? It's so incredible. I love it, I love it, I love it. Hey, uh, again, thank you so much for being here. We are finishing uh, our Colossians series. We've been in this Colossians series for nine weeks. I don't know if you knew that or not, but man, I have loved it. I felt like there's been such good, strong, creative teaching in this book, and I have learned so much about Paul's letter to the church of Colossae, and I hope that you have felt the same way as well. Now, we're only gonna get through the end of chapter two today, uh, so we really hope that in the months to come, we'll be able to pick up chapters three and four, Uh, but man, it's been such a fantastic study. Well, for those of you who know me, know that I am a dad of three boys. So my oldest is Colin. He is a junior at Texas Tech University. Uh, Then I have a middle child. He'll be a freshman at Wiley East High School. He's Carter. My baby is Crockett. He's starting middle school in seventh grade this fall. And uh, ever since my oldest, Colin, was about four years old, we've been a baseball family. Now, I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. My wife was incredibly athletic. If you know us, you know if we give any athletic genes to our kids, it's all come from her and not me. Uh, And she's fantastic. But what we both have done is we've been able to pass down this love of baseball to our boys. And that's my three right there. And they all love the game. And what you'll find is uh, really on most Saturdays, days, uh, throughout the fall and the spring, you'll find Kara and I chasing our boys around some ball field across the DFW Metroplex. Many times we're often split. She's in one direction uh, and I'm in another direction, uh, but we love it. We wouldn't want it any other way. And this right here, this is my baseball chair. I love my baseball chair. Now, um, I've had lots of different versions of these. If you also know me, you know that I lose things a lot. So I'm very generous and I love to leave these across ballparks all over the place so somebody else can enjoy it as well. Uh, But there's something amazing that happens when I sit in this chair. And I don't think it's just me in this chair. I think it's any parent at these youth ball games because you see what happens when I sit in this chair, it's almost transformative because when I sit in this chair, I actually can see the baseball field better than any umpire or coach. <laughs> like 30 feet away off to the side, I can see the strike zone so much better than the umpire that's a foot behind the catcher. Trust me. I, I, know, I know the game of baseball way much better than the coaches that coach my kids' team when I sit in this chair. Forget the fact that they all played college baseball and many of them played professional. I, I know better when I sit in this chair. Uh, I can umpire the game from this chair. I know the buttons to push with my players. I know who's succeeding. I know who's not doing well. I know who needs to be pushed. I know when to pull the pitcher out. Again, I don't know why they just don't let me officiate, why they don't let me coach, why they don't let me do it all from this chair. Now listen, 
And that may sound a little silly, uh, but I'm gonna tell you, I see it happen over and over and over again every single weekend of parents losing their absolute mind by decisions that are made on the ball field. I see parents yelling at umpires and getting, getting kicked out of games. I see parents yelling at coaches. I see parents yelling at other parents. And it is crazy. And it's not just baseball, as I understand it. It's across all youth sports. And the behavior of parents across youth sports is absolutely out of control. Most of the time, all this just ends with a few aggressive comments and the game goes on and everything's fine, but, but, but sometimes it escalates. I don't know if you heard, but there was a youth football coach from Lancaster in 2022. There was an argument that erupted at a nine-year-old preseason football game. Shots were fired, and the gentleman who shot the other gentleman who passed away ended up pleading guilty about two weeks ago. It escalates and it's mind-boggling. Now, psychologists and counselors, they can go on in detail about why this is happening. And that's not the point of today's message, and nor am I equipped to do that. But there's one thing I do know. And what I do know is that in every single one of these instances, whether it's severe or not, you have a parent who's trying to assert his or her authority on the game, and they have no authority to assert that they try to umpire the game, but they have no authority, the umpire does. They try to coach the game, but they have no authority, the coach does. And, and this is precisely what's happening in today's text. Now we know that when Paul wrote the Church of Colossae, he was really writing to combat the influx of false teaching that was happening in the day. And so when Paul gets to the end of chapter two, he laser focuses in on this idea of authority and really spiritual authority. You see, at the time of the day uh, in Colossae, that, that false teachers were imposing their false authority on the believers of the church. And honestly, they had no authority to assert it. Look at verse 16 with me in chapter two where it says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And that word pass judgment, two words, pass judgment in the English language, in the Greek language, it's one word, it's called krino. And krino means to make a legal decision or to pass a ruling, and there's this weight of authority that comes along with this word. See, these false teachers that were there on that day, they were influencing the way the believers in Colossae lived. They were effectively dictating their behavior. So a brief moment, let me go back to this illustration with this chair. I have seen firsthand how parents' assertive behavior False authority has influenced the outcome of the game. Not too long ago, I saw one umpire who was so incredibly fed up with the parents that are in the stands that he called the balk on a pitcher. Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, you don't know what a balk is. A balk is just simply an illegal pitch, all right? But when a balk is called, if there's any runners on the bases, those runners get to go to the next base for free. In this case... It was the last inning of the game. The score was tied. The home team was batting. And there was a runner on third base. 
He called the balk and he said, see ya, and he walked straight off the field. Now I know, and I just absolutely believe he would have never called that balk if it wasn't for the, the uh, behavior of the parents and them chirping and griping the entire day, the entire game. And I've also seen where the spirits of kids who are playing are broken by harsh words of their mom and dad. I've seen them drop their shoulders and cower their head and give up and stop playing. And I've seen it impact the outcome of the game. See, I don't think false authority just affects the believers that lived in Colossae at the day, at the day, during the day, or I don't believe it only affects those that are at baseball games. I believe this false authority can affect you and me as well. And, and probably more than we realize. Now, now stay with me just for a moment. Did you realize um, that there is a lot of data that's being generated in our world every single day? Check this stat out, it's amazing. Over the last two years, 90% of new data uh, was, has been created over the last two years. Of the entire world, 90% has been created in the last two years. Furthermore, th there's a thought that over the, every two years after, that data will be doubled. There's a graph up here that just shows you the amount of data that is created every year and how that is growing exponentially. Now, this is measured by the term of a zettabyte. I don't know what a zettabyte is. We're not gonna talk about a zettabyte. We're not gonna go into detail with this graph. All I want you to see is the exponential growth. This graph started in 2010. This graph uh, foreshadows in 2025. You see the red line, that's our current year. And, and what's true about this is that there is new data and new information that's being created every single day. And that's a lot of data. And that data is being directed directly at you. You are constantly being told who to care for, who to like, how to spend your money, what political affiliation that you should belong to. You're being told who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. You're being told about how you should feel about religion and hot button topics in religion. And probably the most sobering you are being taught how to feel about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, there is a constant fight for your time, your attention, and your affections. And before you know it, you begin to start believing some of these false narratives. And they begin to shape who you are. Just ask a counselor. These false narratives keep counselors in business. And we begin to believe these false narratives even to a point where we become a slave to it. And you begin to believe things like, that's just impossible. Uh, I'm not able to do that. Uh, I'm just too tired and worn out to care. Nobody really loves me. I, I can't go on. I'm so ugly. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm disgusted. I feel so alone. And what I desperately want you to hear and understand this morning and what I absolutely believe that our scripture is teaching us this morning is that when Jesus becomes our sole authority, 
The fullness of the freedom of Christ is experienced. Let me say that again. When Jesus becomes our sole authority, the fullness of the freedom of Christ is experienced. And I wish that would just wash over you. And when you begin to experience this, and when you begin to believe this, the narrative changes. Instead of it's impossible, you begin to believe all things are possible. And instead of, I'm not able to do it, you begin to believe that you can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives you strength. And instead of saying, I'm just too tired to care, you begin to say, Jesus will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And instead of nobody really loves me, you begin to believe that Jesus really does love and deeply care about you. And instead of I just can't go on, you begin to believe my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And instead of being so disgusted with yourself and looking in the mirror and saying I'm so ugly, you'll begin to believe I am God's handiwork. Because you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And instead of, man, I feel so alone, you will begin to leave. He will never leave you or forsake you. See, see, this Christian life, it does not work without Jesus. It just doesn't. He, he has to be our sole authority. And Paul, he really helps us here in this passage of scripture today. He helps us to illustrate this point. And Paul gives us really three really clear examples of what it looks like when someone places somebody or something other than Jesus as their sole authority. He, he gives these really clear examples. And what I wanna do this morning is I wanna talk through these. And as I talk through these, I want you to take some notes. Now, it could be notes that you just take in your head or maybe you could just write some stuff down today. And as I describe these examples and describe these false narratives, this false authority, I, I want you to begin to ask this question. Is any of this sound like me? Is he describing me in this moment? And then I just want you to jot down some things that you think may be consistent with your behavior and your life and indications that you may be listening to a false authority or someone other than Jesus Christ. So let's go for it. Let's start working through these. The first one, the first example that Paul gives is I'm just simply gonna call the arrow becomes the destination. Have you ever been to a wedding uh, and on, that wedding, on the way to the wedding, there was a sign pointing you to the wedding like this. Now, now maybe you've already parked the car and, you've, and, and you're walking to the wedding or maybe you're driving up to the wedding and you see this sign. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous, like silly, for you to get out of the car and just walk over to the sign and, and just kind of hang out here or if you're walking to the wedding, just say, well, there's a sign and your whole group that's with you are just hanging out by the sign and say, man, this is awesome. It's a beautiful sign. We're having lots of fun, good conversation. That's not the party. This is just simply a sign that's pointing you to the party. 
And that is exactly what's happening in verses 16 and 17 of our scripture today. Let me read it. It says in 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow, that's just the sign. The substance, that's Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, you know this, we have seven main festivals that's listed in the Old Testament. All of these festivals point to Jesus Christ and his work. The Passover points to the crucifixion of Jesus. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread points to the burial of Jesus. The first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus. The Festival of the Weeks, or Pentecost, points to the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. The trumpets and, and the atonement point to the second coming of Jesus. And the tabernacles, the future reign of Jesus. And so Paul was telling the church, if you're putting more value on ceremonies and traditions other than Jesus, then your efforts are misguided. And this is a valuable lesson for us today because we engage in ceremonies and traditions all the time. Think of Christmas Eve and Easter services. There's no other time in our church that there's more people on this campus other than Christmas and Easter, Christmas Eve and Easter. Now, I can tell you, as one who helps plan services, Everything that happens on Christmas Eve and Easter in this place points to Jesus Christ. But the question is, are the people that are here, are they feasting on Jesus or are they just coming to a Christmas Eve service with their family? Are they feasting on Jesus or are they just here because this is what you do every single Easter? Now look with me, if you will, at this painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Now, Leonardo da Vinci um, was actually commissioned by the, the uh, Duke of uh, Milan, I almost forgot it, Duke of Milan, uh, to paint this painting. And this painting was actually painted in a dining hall in a monastery in Milan. Now, you see the size of this? This is, this is really close to the actual size of the original Last Supper painting. Actually, this is just a little bit smaller than what he actually painted. Took him three years to do it, did it in the four, late 1400s, and as legend has it, when uh, da Vinci finished this painting, he brought a friend into the room to look at the painting. And, and the friend said this, oh my goodness, this painting is majestic. It's absolutely beautiful. Look at the cup. The cup is ornate and has so much details and the jewels on the cup and the gold on the cup. It's almost lifelike. I cannot believe how real and elegant that cup is. Well, as the legend goes, the friend left and Picasso went, not Picasso, Da Vinci went and got his painting supplies and went to the painting and painted over the cup and removed the cup from the painting. This friend came back a couple of days later and said, why in the world would you do that? That was so ornate and so beautiful. Why would you remove the cup? And Da Vinci said this, said this, nothing must ever distract from Jesus Christ. 
nothing. So celebrations and camps and gatherings and ceremonies, and yes, even communion, which we do at least once a month in this church, they are good, but they are all arrows that point to the destination of Jesus Christ. So what about you this morning? Are you here for Jesus and him alone? Or are you here for some other reason? Some family member made you come and you felt obligated and it's what you've always done. And I would encourage you to to ask this question. Are, are, Are you here for any other reason than to worship and to give reverence to Jesus Christ? And if you are, that may be an indication that Jesus is not your sole authority. There's somebody else or something else driving the train in your life. The second example that Paul gives is what I call you, and really me, we, you become the obstacle. Look with me in verses 18 and 19, it says this. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. See, the false teachers in Colossae were really promoting this dangerous combination of angel worship and mysticism and visions and intellectual pride, and it was leading people away from fully devoting their life and have true faith in Christ. And there's two words that I wanna draw your attention to that's in the passage of scripture that I read. First one is asceticism. Asceticism at its core is humility. The second are actually two words, puffed up. The Greek word for puffed up in this verse is phusio. And phusio means to make one proud or to make or to become arrogant. And when you put these two words, phaseo, puffed up, and asceticism in the same sentence, it is a dangerous combination. And it creates a false humility, self-righteousness, and self-promotion. And there's no doubt that you've met people like this along your spiritual journey that they, they seem very spiritual at first, but, but maybe perhaps a little condescending. Maybe just a little bit better than you is kind of the air that they come across. And according to Paul, this happens when you are not connected to the head and, and you are not in an ongoing, growing relationship with the Lord. Now, you may think you are, but you're not in the word and you're not digging into it every single day. Now, listen, spirituality without Jesus equals pride and arrogance every single day. There's no getting away from it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. More specifically, in his chapter called The Great Sin, this is what he said. This is harsh. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. 
Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Well, that's, that's humbling. And there's no doubt that pride becomes a massive turnoff for those that are seeking Jesus. And I want to ask you this question, a little inventory time. Who's more important today, Jesus or you? Now, the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Yeah, of course, Jesus. But, but begin to inventory how you spent your life last week. Does the way that you spent your life reflect that Jesus is more important or that you are more important? And then what are some steps that you need to do to shift that and to get that back in line for that Jesus would be your sole authority? The third example that Paul gives, I just simply call, when you settle for the God of don't do. Now, now Paul discusses this in verses 20 and 23, and let me read it and follow along with me. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to all the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, have you ever heard this old saying? I doubt any of you students have. Maybe some of you have. You ever heard this old saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do? Have you ever heard that? That, that, that can actually be traced back to the 1930s to a Christian anti-smoking campaign. And, 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 and that saying, the prevailing thought in that saying, and really what this scripture is refuting is that God will accept us by what we don't do. And, and, and these things are, are really self-imposed rules that are passed down by tradition and church culture and individual church dynamics and over time can become a really fabric of our faith. And so we're abstaining from all these things, but they have no basis in our relationship with Jesus. You know, when I grew up, I was always told, don't run in church, don't run in church. Whatever you do, don't run in church. And I had all the energy and I wanted to run. And every time I ran in church, I got in trouble. And I got to a point where I began to believe I have to act a certain way and only if I act a certain way, especially when I go to church, God's not really gonna love me. And, and that was a real thing for me. And so I said, you know, when my, parents, when my kids get older, I'm not gonna handcuff them to this teaching and, and I'm gonna do things a little bit differently. So you know what? My kids ran in church, like all the time, like almost too much. And so when they, this was their playground, their dad works here. And so when they were here, man, they had a blast. And I wanted them to love this place. I can, I can still have visions in my mind. We would sit over here and, and when my kids were just little bitty guys, after church, they would go to the very back and then they would run as fast as they can and they would jump off this stage right here. 
Now, when it was little, they just jump, they would hop down a step and then another step. And as they got older, they tried to see how they can make it all the way to the ground and then how far out they can get. And they loved it. And I wanted my kids to experience that. I also remember the first time I was a youth pastor, a full-time youth pastor at a church, we were planning the summer calendar and we decided it would be really awesome to have a lake day. And I thought it would be really awesome not only to have a lake day, but that we would promote it in the church service on a Sunday morning and we would do a skit. And so I asked a couple of the youth leaders if they would help create and plan a skit that we could promote the lake day in the church service. And they did. They brought, you know, lake toys and all kinds of stuff. And they had this whole thing uh, set out. And they did it great. Every single one of them were wearing shorts. I almost got fired. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I almost got fired because they were wearing shorts that day. Now, now I can understand how some rules and regulations, some self-imposed rules I can understand how the, they can become accepted in various faith expressions. You know, in verse 23, it says that these things have the appearance of wisdom. There's not wisdom, but it has the appearance of wisdom. See, uh, wisdom flows out of being connected to the head. And do you know what the Bible says wisdom is? You can look in Psalms and Job and Proverbs. That those books say that wisdom is fearing the Lord. They say that wisdom is at an overflow of your affections and devotion to Jesus Christ. So these rules and regulations that Paul's talking about, they're false. They're man-made. They're self-created. So whatever you do or whatever you don't do, just make sure they are absolutely rooted and come straight out of the Scripture. And they're not prescribed by some made-up rule or some tradition. Now, I think it's important to say abstaining from certain things uh, for addictions and health reasons and different fasts that you may partake in are extremely important, very valuable, and needed. But what I'm saying is if you feel like you need to abstain from something that is not directly forbidden in the scriptures, because you have a belief that somehow it will help you be connected to the Lord a little bit more, for the Lord to accept you, for Jesus to love you, I believe you're misguided. And I really want you to ask this question. Are you doing something or not doing something for the sole purpose to get the Lord's approval? If you, if you are, you may be living in authority that's outside of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked a lot about false authority. Authority is important. Without authority, we've got anarchy. And so we're not talking about authority here. We're talking about misguided authority. And so I want to ask you, how'd you do on that self-inventory? Did you check any boxes that, yeah, this may be me, this may be me? Well, my encouragement to you this morning is to shift your authority from wherever it is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in our church, man, we, we make a big deal about wanting to wake the world up to Jesus. And, and we wanna do that by really just digging into the Great Commission and the Great Commission just says, number one, we wanna make disciples. 
and make disciples is all about people coming to faith. We wanna introduce people to Jesus. We want you to understand that this is a king, his name is Jesus, and he died a horrible death so you can have a relationship with him. And if you confess him, uh, confess your sins and believe that he was raised from the dead and choose to follow him, you can be a child of his as well. That's what it takes to become a disciple. And then the Great Commission goes on to say that you would be baptized and connect to the church and, and you would make a public profession of your faith. And we saw that with six people today and it's awesome. And then the Great Commission goes on to say that, that you enter these relationships where you teach people all the things I have commanded you. There is an authority there. And that's what we call discipleship here at the Heights. And, and, and if you were saying, maybe there are some things about this false authority that's true of me, maybe you need to enter into a discipling relationship where you can be under a correct spiritual authority. And you could be taught all the things that Jesus commanded you. And so the invitation this morning is just that. Would you, if you believe that you are living a life outside the authority of Jesus Christ, would you make a first step to a life with Jesus Christ? And the first step for you may be to put your faith and trust in him. Your first step may be to get baptized. And your first step may be to be discipled. And we wanna to talk to you about that. We have people in that glass room and we're done here. Uh, they would love nothing more to have that conversation and to pray with you. And I'm gonna pray. We're gonna close our service down, but we're not done uh, because after I pray, Trace is gonna be up here. Uh, we've had some amazing residents that have served with us this summer. Today is their last day for many of them. And uh, Trace is gonna let you introduce them and we're gonna pray a, a commissioning prayer on them, all right? So let's pray together. Father, you are good and you are gracious and you are kind to us. And Father, help us understand that when we transfer this authority to the things of this world that are really captivate us and make us slaves, when we transfer that authority to Jesus Christ, we experience freedom. So King Jesus, would you bring about freedom in this room this morning? There are some here that need to be discipled. Lead them to that conversation Lead them to that relationship, I ask. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray, amen.